Hey everyone, this is Giordano from the Juice Media. Welcome back to the Juice Media podcast, a companion to the Honest Government ad series. This episode of the podcast is recorded on Wurundjeri land, and it's the companion to our latest Honest Government ad about the gaslit shit fuckery and how our government makes everything good shit, such as our science agency. In today's episode of Make Everything Good Shit, we look at the CSIRO, your trusted science agency, which has earned a reputation for great inventions, Wi-Fi, space stuff, AeroGuard, unlike gas companies, which have earned a reputation for poisoning aquifers, ripping you off with high bills, and paying no fucking tax. So we thought, hey, what if we could let those gas companies use the CSIRO brand to regain your trust and keep making the ching-ching? Introducing Jazera. This honest government ad has had an incredible response. So many people have commented that they'd never heard of Jazera, the alliance between five of Australia's biggest fracking companies and the CSIRO, our trusted and beloved science agency. But that's no longer the case now that about a million people have seen our video across our pages. And that's a good thing, because it's super concerning when governments allow the country's scientific agencies to be infiltrated and parasitized by companies with a vested interest in playing down the harmful effects of fossil fuels and fracking on the environment, our health, and of course, the climate crisis. The most worrying thing is that many CSIRO scientists are saying they're unable to communicate their research findings to the public, or to speak out about this bullshit for fear of losing their funding or even their jobs. So I thought we should lend them a hand, because as we head deeper into the climate crisis, we absolutely need our scientists to be able to do their job unfettered. I want to give special thanks to Mark Ogg at the Australia Institute for all the research he's done on Jazeera, on which a lot of this video was based, as well as to other activists on the front lines of stopping the suicidal expansion of the fossil fuel industry. And I'm stoked to welcome as my guest today, one of those very activists, Naomi Hogan. Naomi is the co-national coordinator for the Lock the Gate Alliance, a national grassroots organization with hundreds of local groups across Australia, including farmers, traditional custodians, and conservationists who are concerned about risky coal mining, coal seam gas, and fracking. I asked Naomi to take us on a journey around Australia to the key hotspots where the gas industry is planning to mine or frack for gas. So if you're confused about what the gas-led recovery looks like, this podcast will provide you with the most up-to-date overview. And whilst it's important to have an overview of what's going on, it's also really crucial to know what's happening in your own immediate neighborhood, where communities that stand together can stop further expansion of all fossil fuel extraction. Which is why I asked Naomi, not just about the shit fuckery happening in each state, but also ways that people can help to stop it. Because here's the key point to remember while you listen to this podcast. All the gas projects we discuss are in the early stages of unfolding or still awaiting approval. So now is the time to speak up and stop these developments, to lock the gate and write to your local MPs that this is the year that we have to stop further fossil fuel extraction. Oh, and after my chat with Naomi, stick around. We also have a chat with a very special guest, a former weather forecaster from the bomb who left the agency and is now helping to blow the whistle on what's going on at that agency. I hope you enjoyed this podcast and I'll catch you on the other side. Welcome to the Juice Media Podcast, Naomi Hogan. Thanks for having me. Um, it's really great to have you here uh, as our guest for this podcast. And I thought this would be a great opportunity for people to, to help bring people up to date on what's happening with the so-called gas-led recovery or the gas-led shitfuckery, as we call it here. Um, because you're the national coordinator for Lock the Gate, so you've, you're really at the forefront of what's happening with this um, gas uh, push by um, the Morrison government. So I thought we'd get straight into it. 
Um, and perhaps um, by way of starting off, we, we could kind of pick some of the hotspots around the country, around Australia, uh, that we've identified in the video. Um, and perhaps we'd start off with Queensland, uh, which is uh, at the forefront of this um, of this phenomenon. Um, could you give us a little bit of a sense of what's happening with the gas-led recovery in um, Queensland and also how that intersects with Jazeera, the, the, the gas industry body that we spoke about in the video, how that came about and what your own experience has been of dealing with that? Mm. Yeah, so several years ago, um, there was not a big export industry for gas in Australia. And some of the big gas companies, uh, including Santos and Origin, got together with some international conglomerates and basically built three massive gas exporting terminals from Gladstone in Queensland. And when they did that, they got approval for thousands of coal seam gas wells across Queensland in huge areas of land. Um, this was before anyone had really heard of coal seam gas and um, the approvals were pushed through really quickly. We saw some whistleblowers coming out at the time just saying we're being forced to overnight read thousands of pages and documents of these assessment documents that they say they want rubber stamped basically. And from that saw a massive change in our gas market here in Australia where suddenly we were linked to international gas prices. Uh, we saw gas prices skyrocket up. Um, we saw thousands of gas wells start to spread across Queensland, um, impacting uh, the landholders, farmers, um, the waterways. Uh, there was a huge shift. And as part of that, we also saw Jazeera get set up, which was a, a, a joining of these gas companies to the CSIRO to try and um, undertake science, um, looking at, at what was going on with coal seam gas, but also really trying to um, push out these ideas that, you know, it was okay, we were managing the changes and um, this was something that simply needed to be studied, but hey, it's all approved. You've all lost your legal rights to object because it was approved years ago and now you've suddenly got gas wells, hundreds of gas wells on your property, pipelines, um, massive infrastructure. Um, so it was a, a huge um, shift there in Queensland um, and that's where a lot of the um, activism um, from Lock the Gate originated um, with people that were really um, trying to push back against these massive gas companies and now this Jazeera body um, that was pushing out research at the same time. Could you just give us a sense of what are the harms? Why are people, uh, why are farmers and, and, uh, and traditional owners pushing back against the gas industry? What are the actual harms that have been identified the, um, that the gas industry presents? And this will potentially take us into the discussion of Jazeera, which has been trying to tell us, oh, no, it's all fine. It's all healthy. We've got the studies and the research. Um, but what are the actual concerns? Uh, there are lots of concerns. Um, one of the, the things that makes unconventional gas, so we're talking coal seam gas, shale gas or tight gas, different to the gas uh, extraction that people had witnessed before was the scale and the requirement for thousands of wells. So one of the things we hear a lot about is the surface infrastructure. It's a very invasive industry. They say that they can sort of go in and coexist um, through national parks, farms, cultural sites, um, but actually they need to spread across the landscape in, in terms of uh, coal seam gas you mentioned on your video. In Queensland, there are you know, somewhere around the 19,000 wells, Mark, um, that have been approved. Um, 
just at the moment, Origin Energy through their export terminal, APLNG, are looking to get approval for 7,700 new gas wells in Queensland, coal seam gas wells around the Carnarvon Gorge National Park. Um, that's a, a huge concern to people there. So the scale is the thing that we hear a lot about, the impact on the landscape. Each one of those wells needs to drill through the water aquifers, the groundwater system, to access the gas that lies below. Uh, in Queensland, a lot of that gas is trapped in layers of, of coal seams that also have a lot of water in there. They need to pull up that water and in depleting the groundwater um, to get at the coal seam gas, they're lowering the water table. That has a big impact on farmers who their water bores run dry and they need to go through really difficult negotiations with those coal seam gas companies to try and get um, a make good agreement on their groundwater or a new water bore drilled. Um, so far, hundreds of wells, water wells are supposed to run dry in Queensland because of coal seam gas. Um, when you get to shale gas, which is what they're proposing to put across huge areas of the Northern Territory, for example, um, that is very difficult to extract from shale rock and they always need to frack that, um, that layer of rock to get at the gas. And that means that not only are you drilling through the aquifers and the water supplies to get to the rock below, but you also need to pump huge amounts of chemicals, sand and water under there, break open the rock, hold it open while you pull up all of that really contaminated waste fluid while trying to get the gas out. Um, so there are lots of concerns with migration of chemicals into groundwater, migration of methane, um, and methane is the greenhouse gas that they're going for, uh, that there are leaks across the gas fields when they're extracting this stuff, can lead to a huge amount of a very potent greenhouse gas, methane going straight into the atmosphere, as well as the fact that it's then a greenhouse gas that's burnt um, and contributes to climate change there as well. So issues around water, issues around the destruction of the landscape, and then issues of contributing to really dangerous climate change. Thanks for mentioning that because as we speak, I mean, it's always really worth reminding ourselves and everyone that this, we've been told this is the decade that counts and specifically this is the year that counts that we really have to put an end to further extraction of uh, fossil fuels. And our government is just about to go full pelt with the so-called gas-led recovery. Um, in order to justify all of this, or at least in order to, um, to sort of sanitize it and make it sound like it's not such a big deal, we are seeing, we've seen this entity, Jazera, pop up, which is um, responsible for a lot of the research that's coming out through the CSIRO, which is telling us, oh no, the effects of fracking are not that bad. It's not as bad as in the US. It's actually pretty good. It's not, it's not, so this is the, the attempt to sort of promote it and sell it to, to us. Can you speak a little bit, perhaps in the context of Queensland still, um, your experience of Jazera and how they operate and what are some of the studies that they've put out? We've mentioned a couple in, in the video, but perhaps you could just give us a sense of, of uh, expand a little bit on that. Sure. I mean, Jazera, it's really interesting because uh, a lot of the scientists that work there are really good people trying to do really good research, let's be fair. Um, the issue is that the money is coming from these massive gas companies and the way that the final reports are put out into the public always seems to come from this angle of spin that everything's okay, nothing to see here. You know, just have done some really interesting reports. One, uh, 
study showed that every farm that's hosting coal seam gas in Queensland is losing about $2 million worth of agricultural productivity due to the roads, the pads, the compaction of the soil, the loss of ability to use that land. Um, but that was a report by Jazeera that was basically buried. They didn't want to talk about it. They did not give that to the government and say, here you go, here you go, media, everything's fine here. So it's really interesting that um, while I think there are probably lots of good scientists that work there, the way in which that information is put to the public seems to be very much from this lens of, hey, we're getting all our funding from the gas industry. We better make this look good. And so that's where we saw that really concerning piece of work that was partially funded by Origin Energy. Origin picked the six gas wells to study. Uh, that very small study of very specific parts seemed to, to come up just fine. Um, and therefore that was used to somehow say that all fracking is safe across the country. Um, that is not good practice when it comes to scientific reports. You know, we see really good practice from peer-reviewed reports about fracking right around the world. There are thousands of reports, and most of those point to very serious issues around health, around water, around impacts on the landscape. Um, that's the sort of, you know, open mind that this study should be done with to really look at it. But unfortunately, we're seeing this industry pressure and this industry money, and that's determining how this research is put out to the public. I just wanted to, uh, to pop around the country a little bit. What about New South Wales moving down the coast? Uh, we mentioned the Pilliga Forest, and um, but also the, all around the Pilliga, there are licenses. I think they know, they're called zombie pels. Getting a bit technical, maybe you can explain. But all these licenses are dormant. Uh, but they can be reactivated at any point. So this this is why in the video we mentioned, you know, watch out for Santos getting ready to fuck the Pilliga Forest uh, with a high chance they'll also take a shit on surrounding farmlands. Uh, can you unpack that a little bit? Why should farmers around the Pilliga in, in that region of northern central New South Wales be concerned about what's happening? It's very concerning because for many years, Santos has been mapping several gas fields across that area of northwest New South Wales, which is a highly productive agricultural region. And the Pilliga Forest is very significant to the traditional owners of that place and the groundwater that it's connected to through the Great Artesian Basin. So Santos have licenses right across that huge region. Um, they've zeroed in on the Pilliga because I think they thought it would be easier to get started there with less opposition because it was a state forest and they dealt with the government. Um, and they've basically now been approved to put in 850 coal seam gas wells through that area but they've refused to relinquish licenses right across the Liverpool Plains and all of the farming regions surrounding that. Um, they have those dormant zombie PELs or petroleum exploration licenses there. Um, the government made noises about um, not uh, allowing those PELs to be activated, um, but they've now gone quiet on that and are talking about, oh, maybe some of them will be relinquished, some of them will continue. Um, it's forcing people to live under a cloud of uncertainty. Um, people are also really concerned about the gas pipelines that would be required to go across the region uh, to link up to the Narrabri project uh, in the Pilliga. Um, and people are really concerned about coal seam gas in the Pilliga and the precious place that that is for a recharge area for the Great Artesian Basin. So water, you know, rainwater flows in that area into those creeks that flow beneath the ground in the Pilliga and then recharge the Great Artesian Basin, which is a critical water supply 
um, you know, in drought times, people are 100% reliant on groundwater out there and no one wants to see that interfered with um, or polluted. The Great Artesian Basin, um, in case anyone, if you Google it, if you do a Google image of the Great Artesian Basin, you'll be amazed at how massive it is. It covers an incredible area of, I mean, I'm almost like the, the whole court, upper quarter of, of the Australian continent. And so the Adani mine has also been uh, criticized for tapping into that, uh, that Artesian Basin, which really sustains all life really in, 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 uh, in, the, in the eastern and northeastern part of the continent. Mm. So I, if, you know, if people are hearing this from New South Wales, especially in, in regional New South Wales areas, this is, this concerns you. Yeah, that's right. And at the moment you can put pressure on the New South Wales government to relinquish those zombie pels. Um, there's a live action going at the moment um, through CSG Free Northwest uh, to try and get that uh, pushed through. Um, and certainly the activism continues to protect the Pilliga and to stop that Santos project. Sure, it's been approved, uh, but there's a court case on foot that local farmers are running uh, to push back against the climate damages and also the pipeline. Um, and there's also over 100 conditions that Santos has to reach in order to get the final go-ahead for that project, and they have not made a final investment decision for that project either. So there is still absolutely plenty of reason to put pressure on Santos to pull out of that project. Right. So this is unfolding right now. It's not a done deal. This is the time to speak up. Um, and we'll, we'll put in the in the show notes for this podcast and in the video description, if you're watching on YouTube, we're going to put links to, um, we're going to have New South Wales. This is what you can do about this in your area. Um, and um, if, if possible, I'll get some links uh, from you after the for podcast, sure. Naomi. Uh, likewise with Queensland, is there something that people can do there for, locally for what's happening there? Absolutely. I mean, there's a there's a big spread of various gas fields in Queensland, but certainly one that people are looking to fight really hard is that expansion um, around Carnarvon Gorge National Park for the 7,700 wells by origin. Um, so, yeah, we'll include links to that and also some of the work that's happening um, with traditional owners and pastoralists to try and protect the, the channel country region of Western Queensland there from, from new gas proposals as well. Um... Moving on to the Northern Territory, um, where, um, if I understand correctly, the recently there was a moratorium on fracking. Uh, that moratorium has been lifted, thanks in part to research by Jazeera, some of the findings there. Oh, no, it's all good and safe, so we're going to uh, open it up. From what it looks like, gas companies are just rearing to go. Uh, I was reading that the Morrison government's resource minister, Keith Pitt, has already announced $21 million for fracking wells at a project that hasn't even received NT environmental approval. So they just, for them, it's like, yep, this is going to happen. Uh, and then we're also seeing a new uh, energy company, which we really, we put in the spotlight in the video, Empire Energy, which has already benefited substantially from taxpayer handouts. Um, they're the sole beneficiary of the, the Morrison government's uh, gas roads, $174 million subsidy. These are huge amounts of money that are going into the, into, in, into this industry. Uh, and also Empire Energy is a, is a prolific uh, political do uh, donor. They've given thousands of dollars to the Liberal Party. So can you give us a little bit of a sense what's happening in the Northern Territory? Yeah, I mean, that was a good summary for Empire Energy, who also were the um, beneficiaries of that $21 million that Keith Pitt announced yesterday. So, I mean, it's, it's a business that's run by 
bunch of ex-bankers, honestly. Um, they're out there looking to try and drill and frack as much as they can because I think they're going to make some money out of it. Um, we've also got Santos operating next door there. Um, they're currently pushing ahead with a few frack wells despite um, huge opposition from uh, landholders and pastoralists there and the traditional owners of that area right across the Beedaloo Basin. Um, you know, that area is, has been named Beedaloo Basin by um, gas companies basically, but this is a region just south of Catherine, just south of the Mataranka Hot Springs that some people might know if they've ever had the um, ability to get up into the NT. It's, a, it's an absolutely beautiful area. It's, beautiful, yeah. it's like an oasis. It's an absolute oasis and the groundwater from where they want to frack um, just south of there flows towards those Mataranka hot springs and recharges the Roper River. Um, we've seen incredible activism over many years from First Nations people from Borroloola across to Elliot and up to Catherine, um, pastoralist community members. There is no doubt uh, that the community across the Northern Territory has said they do not want fracking, they do not want to live in a fracking gas field um, and people don't want to put water at risk there. Um, but unfortunately, we've seen a massive push from the government who are now working with Jazeera to do a number of studies um, that they say will, will show that it can all go ahead. Um, and we've seen huge amounts of pressure from Santos, from Origin Energy and now from Empire Energy um, to go ahead with several um, exploration fracking wells um, to try and prove up the resource more. Thanks, Nomi. I know there's a lot more to say about that, but um, again, we'll include um, a link in the show notes about what, if you're in the Northern Territory and you're concerned about this, um, we'll, we'll include a link about what you can do that. Uh, but just in the interest of really painting a picture of the magnitude of the expansion of the gas industry that we're seeing right now in Australia, uh, I want to jump on to WA because there we're seeing a project um, which is run again by Chevron and but mainly good Woodside up in the Burrup Peninsula known as the Burrup Hub um, and this is a gargantuan project I, I, I think I read six billion cubic tons of emissions over the lifetime of the project this is game over like this dwarfs the Adani mine um, can you give us a sense of what's happening up there in, in, in WA? Absolutely. And I want to do a real shout out to the Conservation Council in WA that lead a lot of the campaign work on that borough pub. Um, so this is, yeah, Woodside is pushing ahead with a huge project. Uh, it's something like it would be 11 times Australia's annual emissions coming out of just that one massive LNG project. So it's, it's uh, up to 50 massive offshore gas extraction wells um, right through a really significant reef area um, that would have massive climate implications, huge. Um, we've already seen in WA that due to the gas industry, their emissions in WA are going up and up and up. Um, whereas, you know, obviously the message is we need to start keeping our emissions under control. WA is going the absolute opposite direction, as will the Northern Territory if they um, upscale the fracking there. Is it's, that a done deal also? I mean, is it already underway or is it under construction? 
It's, it's absolutely not a done deal. It's never a done deal. Um, so Scarborough and Browse are the two um, projects out there. Um, you know, the issue that these massive gas companies have is they will need a suite of very difficult approvals because of the massive scale. They will need a heap of money. And that money they're going to be, yes, looking for government handouts, but they're also looking for handouts from all sorts of, of companies, corporations, banks, financiers globally. Um, and these are the companies and institutions that absolutely need to hear pressure from all of us that now is not the time to be giving cash to these sort of projects, these massive carbon bombs. We absolutely can't keep funding it. This is, as you said, the critical decade. We need to be investing all of that in genuine clean energy. Um, we can absolutely do it. It's all possible. Um, and this is the sort of project that we do not need. Um, the International Energy Agency came out with a report recently that was quite clear. We need to keep all new oil, gas and coal basins in the ground if we're going to meet our climate commitments and hopefully have a safe climate. And, um, and this sort of project just can't go ahead. And so, no, it's, it's never a done deal and um, it's absolutely worth ramping up the pressure. So um, if I understood correctly, call your bank if you're with Commonwealth, ANZ, NAB, Westpac, call them up and, and ask them or tell them that, you know, you're, you're closing your account because you don't want to fund these kind of projects because they've definitely, they're the, the top candidates for bankrolling these kind of projects. Um, I shifted a long time to, ago to Bank Australia and um, my super fund also, that's something really powerful that we can all do um, and um, really encourage people to do that. Um, I also wanted to just throw in there that in case anyone was thinking, but what about the economy? All of these projects will really benefit Australia. These gas companies pay little to sometimes no tax. So the royalties from these uh, subsidized projects that, that we don't get a benefit back uh, or nothing close to what we put into it. So it's a loss. The gas is exported overseas. It doesn't help lower our gas prices. So it's not, a, it's not like, oh, well, we lose some, we win some. No, this is not something that will benefit um, Australians on almost any level, uh, however you want to measure it. Um, um, while we're talking about WA, it's a very big area. We've spoken about the Barup Hub. Is was there any other area in WA that people need to be concerned about or keeping an eye on? I think at the moment it's really critical that we keep supporting communities in the Kimberley region, um, in that northern area of, of WA. There, uh, the gas companies call it the Canning Basin. Um, there's a huge amount of unconventional gas and oil up there, and we've just seen a sort of a kickstart. Um, they, they did have a moratorium in place in WA as well. Uh, the government there lifted that. They protected most of WA from fracking, but they left some areas open, including some incredible areas across the Kimberley. Um, we know that there are many traditional owners who are trying to stand up for country and water up there to prevent fracking. Um, and I think we're increasingly going to see um, community pushback up around Broome and, and across the Kimberley there. We've got companies coming in from Texas that want to frack um, across the Kimberley and we've just seen Origin Energy buy in with Buru Energy to start drilling for oil and putting forward fracking plans. And, you know, a company like Origin Energy that uh, go ahead and do a rebranding to call themselves Good Energy, um, what they don't tell people who think they're 
hopefully, you know, supporting a solar panel company is that they're actually one of the biggest oil and gas frackers here in Australia. And they are currently expanding across the beautiful Kimberley region, plus in the Northern Territory in Queensland. So I think it's really important that people know that companies like Origin Energy um, are absolutely moving in the wrong direction here. And again, we'll include the show notes for that as well in the, uh, in the video description and the show notes, a link for uh, more info information about that. And also a reminder that you don't only have to change your bank and super, but you know you can also change your energy company. And uh, we'll include a link in there for some um, options that um, you know that are better to uh, better to support than Origin and uh, and some of these others. We can help make a decision just by switching our um, energy provider. Moving down to Victoria. Uh, it's still in the interest of our really, you know, we're painting a picture here of the magnitude of what we're dealing with. Can you fill us in? This is the latest uh, development that's happening now. We've just seen a moratorium being lifted on uh, conventional gas. Can you explain what that is? What is conventional gas as opposed to fracking? And why do we still need to be concerned about what's happening in Victoria? What can people down here where we are um, be looking out for? Yeah, well, firstly, just want to do a shout out to the massive amount of work that communities had put in over many years to get um, that ban and that moratorium. Uh, it's very disappointing for community members, farmers um, and anyone concerned about the climate to see that conventional moratorium now lifted. Um, it means that gas companies can start targeting again uh, down in the Gippsland region and also in that southwestern area of, of Victoria there, more along sort of Great Ocean Road, as you mentioned in the video. Um, this uh, is obviously not where uh, people think that we should be moving. You know, Victoria has so many fantastic um, projects that they're working on when it comes to renewable energy and when it comes to actually getting off gas, um, which will work out to be a lot cheaper for consumers and energy users in the long run. And, yeah, people feel that it's really absolutely going in the wrong direction um, to, to restart drilling. Uh, it means that they can't undertake um, hydraulic fracturing. Um, so some of the risks are lessened. Um, but certainly people are very concerned about having gas rigs um, on their properties and, and through their water. So um, I think we're going to see a lot of pressure continue to, to mount there and want to do a shout out to Friends of the Earth in Victoria who are really leading on that work um, and have for many years. We're going to put a link in the show notes for Drill Watch, which is that the Friends of the Earth initiative that they've yes. initiated now to... So communities can understand if you're in Gippsland, if you're on the on the Great Ocean Road, all the coast, or all the way down to Portland, and also inland from there. These are all areas that are under exploration licenses. This problem could be coming to your neighborhood right now. So check out drillwatch.org.au. We'll put the uh, link in the show notes um, because Victoria needs to go back on, on the alert. And about the concerns, I mean, we don't even need to imagine. We've just seen in the Gulf of Mexico what happens when you have uh, uh, drilling for gas I mean, it looked like a scene out of Pacific Rim or some Hollywood film with the ocean on fire. Um, that story came out the day that we put the video out. So I very quickly did a, a last minute edit to actually include the little footage there uh, of that firestorm coming out of the ocean just off the Great Ocean Road. I called it an artist's rendition, but actually that's exactly what's happening. It's not fantasy. It's not some alarmist kind of thing. So, I, you know, I feel like, thank you, Naomi, you've given us a, you know, a, a, a national snapshot. And I know there are other things to watch out for probably in South Australia and Tasmania. That's, these are not the only things, but those are some of the key spots. Just by way of concluding, internationally, where is Australia uh, 
position like when you you know there's this debate is also unfolding in the US now that the Biden administration has come in it's also been a massive thing in the UK the the, the anti-fracking movement is Australia on on par with these countries in terms of of dealing with uh, uh, the gas industry or sort of curtailing its activities or are we on a different trajectory completely can you put it just so that we put it in international context where we stand I mean, I think internationally, we're a bit of a laughing stock when it comes to action on climate and to see our government at this critical juncture in history come out with a, a coronavirus solution that is a gas led recovery um, is an absolute joke and very disappointing um, internationally. We are, though, seeing incredible pressure from the gas lobbyists around the world to try and push a very desperate argument um, that we somehow need to expand gas in order to take action on climate. That's their latest sort of buzz words to try and get through this period. Um, there's no grounding for that. We absolutely know that we need to be declining, that we cannot be expanding, that we've got enough happening at the moment when it comes to extraction of fossil fuels to phase that out as we go to renewables. We don't need to grow any of this stuff. We're currently seeing these desperate attempts from gas industry here in Australia, but also internationally, to try and get any funding they can get from any government or any corporation to try and keep paying for this stuff. Um, and that's what we need to prevent. Naomi, I want to thank you um, for giving us that update on um, what's happening. Thanks for putting in context locally, internationally. I just want to end off with a slightly more personal question. You're dealing, as 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 are many activists and uh, traditional owners and First Nation communities, what we're literally fighting for um, is the continuation of life, human life, non-human life on the planet. Um, and it takes a huge emotional toll on people. Um, and I think someone like you who's working in this field is constantly being reminded of the loss of, you know, um, of our future, of, of, of species, of ecosystems. How do you deal with that emotional toll? Um, some, does it sometimes, do you sometimes feel like it's, it's a lot to deal with? Is it overwhelming? What are, what are your strategies for dealing with that? I, and I just before you answer that, I just wanted to mention, I recently um, learned about the term solastalgia, which was coined uh, by Glenn Albrecht. I've just been listening to his uh, talk. Solastalgia is kind of similar to nostalgia. Nostalgia is a, a feeling of melancholia that you feel when you leave a place, your home, and you miss your home. But solastalgia is the feeling of missing your home when you're still at home, not because you've left, but because the things that make home beautiful, you know, the, the nature or the ecosystems or, or your community leaves the place. And that's what we're seeing in a lot of these places ravaged by bushfires, driven by climate change, droughts, mining, those sort of things. How do you deal with solastalgia? I mean, I've seen a lot of solastalgia firsthand living in the Hunter Valley um, and uh, seeing communities and particularly the traditional owners for those places. Um, they've had their homes and their whole stories ripped up for massive open cut coal mines. And um, that's one of the most in your face examples of, of, of how this is playing out for people and, and the sadness and loss that comes with that. Um, for me, and I think for many people dealing in this space, um, connection is probably the most important thing. It all feels overwhelming and, and terrifying and maddening um, if, if you're thinking about it alone, but 
where we've seen that success and that energy and that pushback is when people join up with those around them. They find connection through fighting for the things that they love together, fighting for their water supply, um, fighting for their kids' future is something that brings people together and there's a beautiful positive energy that comes from that and that gives you that strength to, to carry on. Um, you know, I feel incredibly lucky to be doing the work that I'm doing. Um, I, I really feel for people who are in the midst of having to spend their free time arguing with gas companies or looking out at, at land and, and country that has been destroyed. Um, you know, I think those folks have a, have a really hard time of it, but I have also seen people really energised and, and empowered coming through to, to push back and to know that we're part of a, a community at a local level, nationally and internationally of, of amazing people doing really cool stuff to to protect country, to, to fight climate change. So yeah, that's what keeps a lot of us going, I reckon. That's awesome. Well, you're definitely one of those people, Naomi. So thank you so much for the work that you do. And um, thanks for coming on the Juice Media podcast. We really, really appreciate your time. Oh, thank you, good on you. Before we finish uh, today's podcast, we have a really special additional guest. As you know, our Honest Government ad spoke about how gas companies have infiltrated our very trusted and dear scientific institution, the CSIRO, but we also talked about the Bureau of Meteorology, which again is a very trusted household name in, uh, in Australia. And uh, I'm really stoked to have as our guest today, uh, a former employee of the BOM who worked there for 16 years. And uh, he's here today, it's first public um, uh, interview on the matter of why what happened at the bomb, the reasons that caused him to leave. Welcome to the Juice Media Podcast. We're really uh, honored to have you here today, Stephen King. Hi, Giordano. Thanks for having me. Um, so as I said, you were a weather forecaster at the bomb for 16 years, um, but you felt the need to resign uh, two years ago, I believe. Can you tell us what happened at the bomb to make you want to leave? And um, yeah, uh, maybe give us uh, an understanding of the circumstances, how you saw things changing and that uh, led to your departure. Yeah, as I said, I worked at the Bureau for 16 years. 10 years of that, I was a uh, senior forecaster in Melbourne, forecasting Melbourne and Victoria's weather, you know, every day. Um, and that included during the Black Saturday fires and during the, fire, uh, during the flood events of 2010, 2011. Um, and then, yeah, I'd been forecasting up until about 2017, 2018. Um, so I should say right from the outset, like when I joined the Bureau, it was a great place to work. Uh, it's great people to work with and the teamwork was just amazing. And there's almost like a sense of family when you would go to work every day and you'd work with these people to get, you know, a good forecast out for all of, all of us Australians. So that continued on for most of my career. And then in about 2016, there was a change of management. Uh, so the director changed and in comes this guy who is an ex-Jazera guy who you've mentioned in the video. So after that, he brings in all these other strategies and restructuring plans. Um, and around that time, 2017, 2018, there was just a heap of uncertainty around for all the staff. Uh, and at the same time, we had the pay negotiations going on as well. So there was some industrial action going on. We were, we were on strike. Um, and as a result of all that, like morale was just down the toilet. 
And, you know, for from what I hear, it's still that way in the organisation now, another three or four years later. Um, so around that time, around 2018, uh, I mean, everyone's mental health had begun, begun to decline. Um, and then mine began to decline as well. You know, even while doing shift work for 15, 16 years, I managed to keep everything under control. There was this incident, which I won't go into with my managers, um, and that basically triggered a complete mental breakdown for me. It, it almost cost me my life. And, you know, I thought I would be back at work after like a couple of weeks or whatever. And I basically didn't return. So yeah, I should point out also that, you know, I'm in an incredibly privileged position. Like I've got enough savings that I can go off and go do some other things and not have to worry about my career too much. But unfortunately, uh, there's still plenty of people left at the Bureau, like climatologists and meteorologists, who don't have that luxury. And, you know, they have families to support, uh, mortgages to pay, and they're basically stuck there. And so, you know, that's part of the reason why I'm speaking out, I guess, so that someone is giving them a voice. Because, you know, in your video, when uh, Alan says, you know, please send help, I mean, that is almost exactly what's going on in there. It's, I mean, I laugh, but it's kind of sad how accurate that is. We'd like to warn you that all this will lead to more extreme weather events, droughts, floods, and hotter, more frequent bushfires. But the very same guy who founded Jazeera and turned your CSIRO into a cheer squad for gas companies is now our boss. And he loves to remove all mention of climate from our public statements. Please send help. Back over to you at Bullshit HQ. Thank you, Bomb. After my breakdown I took some time off and I returned briefly in sort of mid 2019 but it was obvious by that point that I wasn't wanted anymore in the organization I was seen as a troublemaker I feel that they basically exploited my mental health and made my life so miserable at the organization that I had no choice to leave so late 2019 comes around and I mean, everyone remembers it well. Half the country is on fire by November, December 2019. And I noticed the Bureau puts out this video about, about the fires. And they're like, they're talking about what are, what are the drivers of these fires and what's causing them? And, and they talk like for five minutes and they talk about, you know, the Southern Annular Mode. They talk about the Indian Ocean Dipole, all these other things and in the whole five minutes, they just never at once mentioned climate change at all. And I was just like, I thought to myself, that's a bit, that's a bit odd. And so I didn't think that much more of it. So by March 2020, uh, fires had all been put out. And I think the Bureau had put out a report. Like it was a special climate statement they put out about the fires and the Black Summer, right? It's 20, 30 pages long. I get to the end. I was like, I was like they didn't mention climate change. It's like, why didn't they? Mean? And so, you know, I even went back and did like a control F and sorted through the whole document and climate change is nowhere to be seen in the document. And so I was like, I thought to myself, I was like, Something, something's going on here. So I look up the, the current director of the Bureau and also his uh, chief, his CCO, his chief customer officer, whatever the hell that means. But their LinkedIn pages say, you know, I worked in sort of CSIRO and Jazeera and all these other links to the gas industry. And I just thought to myself, it's like, what the hell is going on here? 
I talked to a few people and most people are just like, oh, look, you're a conspiracy nut. Don't worry about it. You're just looking for something that doesn't exist. And anyway, so at one point I get in touch with Michael West Media and Sandy Keane was the editor at that point. It was literally the last day before the second lockdown in Melbourne. And so we're really lucky to have actually met up. And, you know, she told me about everything she'd been researching for the last five or 10 years. And she'd been you know, going all around New South Wales, chasing the gas industry, chasing Santos and all this other bullshit that they've been getting up to for years and years. So she's well over, well all over the topic. And she's like, oh, well, of course they're in charge of the Bureau. So she puts out her first article in August, 2020. Um, it really just goes into you know, these two people, the CEO and the CCO and their histories and what we could find on LinkedIn and published all that on Michael West Media. And then she's like, right, let's do some, let's ask them some FOIs. I was like, you serious? Well, can we do that? She's like, yeah, 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 I've done all this before. And so me having worked there, I knew exactly, well, not exactly, but you know, where, where she should be looking. So between the two of us, she's like, okay, where, what should I ask for? I'm like, well, let's ask for the emails about this video that they did on the, on the fires. Right. So she puts in one request for that. She puts in another one for, we asked for like all the emails around that special climate statement that didn't mention climate change. We were like half expecting, you know, when most of the media does FOI requests and they just get back all these black pages of redacted documents. And we didn't, we got, we got a treasure trove and it only had, like it had some names redacted, which is completely understandable because there's a lot of people involved that, you know, need to have the identities protected in this. Um, but it was all just there, pages and pages and pages of these emails and drafts of the documents. And so she shoot, shots it off to me and she's like, she's like, take a look at these. I'm like, oh, did you find anything? She's like, yeah, just take a look. So I'm skimming through. Uh, first, I'm going through like the, the draft of the climate statement, right? And it's got, there's this whole page on climate drivers, right? About what, what caused the fires or what was, what were the events leading into the fires? And there's this other section about uh, climate change, global warming um, and greenhouse gases. There's even, there's even a graph they've got in there of like the 20th century temperatures going up like this. And that's just all been crossed out in like red, red yeah. pen. So we showed some, just so the people who've seen our video and we'll put an excerpt here while I'm saying this, we've got an excerpt of the video where we actually show one of the pages that's been redacted. That's just one of many, many pages in that freedom of information request. Uh, so you can kind of get a sense of the the red lines um, that, that that have been put through. That's what you're referring to. Yeah. 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 So I was so chuffed when that made it onto the video last week. It was just hilarious. Um, so we did like another follow-up about uh, sort of climate attribution science and that then came out uh, January this year. I just want to zoom in on one thing before we um, before we wrap up. You've just mentioned climate attribution. This is not something that a lot of people will have heard about, but it's actually really important. Could you explain what climate attribution science is? Who is using it? Other Bureau of Meteorology organizations in other countries and why is the bomb not using it? Yeah. Right. So attribution science, it's been around for five, six years or so. And as you mentioned, like pretty much every science agency around the world, science and weather agency has some sort of climate attribution section, department, agency, whatever. And, you know, as Sandy loves to say, because when she was doing all this research, she's like, 
even Swaziland has a department. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, Sandy, whatever. Up until like 2015, 2016, we never meteorologists and climatologists, we'd talk to the media and say it was a heat wave in summer or a heavy rain event or something. And inevitably the journalist would ask, oh, so is this, is this evidence of climate change? And of course, up until that point, the answer was always no, you can't attribute a single event to climate change. We're in the position now where the science is sort of advanced enough where we can say statements like climate change has contributed to the severity of an event. And, you know, we're even in a position now where we can say by how much. And that's what we're seeing. So the, the British Met, the New Zealand's, uh, um, the Canadian Bureau of Meteorology, they're all talk, even Swaziland, you're saying, they're all, yeah. they're all starting to talk about this. So so just so that people understand when the weather forecasters or there's a re weather report about a, an extreme weather event, they can actually, they do tell people this has a, a likelihood because you can never, in science, you can never say 100%, but this is a very strong likelihood of being caused by climate change so viewers in those countries are starting to hear those things from their weather bureau but here in australia you won't hear that on on the on a bomb report is that what's what the problem is yeah so that's pretty much what's going on we still haven't gotten quite to the bottom of the climate attribution part the guardian somehow got hold of it so they have reported on it and they approached the bureau they said oh can we can we talk to these researchers about about this report that you've published and the Bureau said twice, they said, no, you can't talk to them. And right. wow. so, yeah, now we're just in the, we're in the situation where we're like, well, what the hell is going on? So mm. we, we asked them directly. We were like, well, why can't your scientists talk to the media? There still hasn't been a connection made between the fires and climate change. And we asked them, when, when is any of this research that you may or may not be doing, when is it going to be published? And the response we got was, We've already answered those questions, which and they hadn't. So there's a real lack of transparency here. I mean, these are publicly funded institutions. We fund the the bureau, the bomb with like 260 million dollars of taxpayer funds go to it. Um, we, as citizens, should expect transparency, like you know, from from these organisations. So fuck that that uh, way of approaching <laughs> this kind of stuff and. Um, and there needs to be a push. I'm not sure exactly how it happens that we know we get the, the the bomb straightened out and get these fossil fuel interests need to be out of here. The people who established Jazeera and who have ties to the gas industry shouldn't have a role of, of influence in, in these organizations. Sorry, I'm just having a rant here. Uh, but, um, you know, I think yeah, that's, no, I'll that's... jump in one with yeah, a little bit more on that. You know, there are some excellent, hardworking people still at the bomb, right? All the right. climatologists, the meteorologists, they're excellent. They're, they're like world leaders in what they do, right? They've some, many of the climatologists have published like IPCC research. So that's, that's how good they are, but they're basically being gagged at the yeah. moment. We need to be able and, to hear from them. Yeah. Not, yeah, the, and not the gas industry we, people. Yeah. And we've said like in the article, it's, it's not those people that need to go. It's the leadership and the executive team that the leadership have then installed at the Bureau and in God knows what other organizations uh, that they need to go so that our our scientists who we're paying for can do so climate scientists can actually do some climate mm -hmm. science that that's all we're asking for it's it's like nothing revolutionary yeah. it's it's quite no, logical absolutely um just by way of conclusion i just want to um mention uh, uh one of the the deep ironies of the the, the fucked up crazy universe that we live in <laughs> 
but you know this is a you know you've been accused of being of peddling a conspiracy it sounds like it's not at all a conspiracy there is a lot of evidence to show that there is a concern about uh, the the bomb being influenced and and gagged in the ways that you described but we've also seen real conspiracies being peddled on the internet. A little while ago, Craig Kelly, uh, a senior um, coalition MP, accused the bomb of fabricating temperature records to show that, uh, to try and manufacture the fact that, uh, you know, there were no heat waves in, in the past. So they- Yeah, that, that is the irony of the situation is that everyone thought, you know, that the Bureau was uh, hiding everything to hide climate change. And it turns out that, you know, the exact yeah. opposite is true. There is a conspiracy. It's not the one that the bullshit, the bullshit artists are trying to peddle. There's, <laughs> yeah. there's a real one. Uh, Stephen, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I just want to uh, repeat that, you know, this is your first time that you've um, spoken publicly about this. And I just want to thank you for your courage that you've, you know, you've obviously gone through a really difficult process um, to um, process all this, made a decision to leave a job that you obviously are very passionate and did very well for 16 years. Um, and you've, you're now in, you've, you've been in service of the public as a, as a weather forecaster, and now you're in service of the public as a, an information, you know, you're trying to sort of lift the lid and shine the light where it needs to go. So we here at the Juice Media, we just want to really thank you for that. That takes a lot of courage and uh, we really want to let you know we appreciate it. So thank you very much. All right. Thank you, Giordano, and all the Juice Media team. Thanks so much. Take care. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of the Juice Media Podcast. I hope it's helped to bring you up to date with what's happening with the so-called gas-led recovery, and most importantly, what you and your local communities can do to stand in the way of further fossil fuel extraction in Australia. You'll find links to all the things we've mentioned in the podcast in the show notes or in the video description below if you're watching this podcast on YouTube, including things you can do to take action in the various states we've mentioned. I want to take this opportunity to also thank Ellen, who edited this podcast, the first one she's edited all on her own, and it's been a huge fucking help for me. So thank you, Ellen. And of course, as always, a huge thanks to our patrons whose support allows us to produce the Honest Government ads and podcast companions such as this one. In particular, our patron producers who support us at the highest level of $100 per month. Thank you. If you value our work and can afford to, please consider supporting us at patreon.com forward slash the juice media. You've been listening to the juice media podcast with me, Giordano. I'll catch you very soon for our next Honest Government ad. Until then, take care.